Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to the Theater Podcast: Intimate Personal Conversations with Theater's Biggest Names. This episode is with director and writer Alex Timbers, who currently has two shows on Broadway, Moulin Rouge and, of course, Beetlejuice. And being September, this continues the Beetlejuice takeover here on the Theater Podcast. So we are very excited to bring you this two-part episode with Alex Timbers. I was really fascinated when I learned that uh, Moulin Rouge and Beetlejuice open within months of each other. I always think it's so cool when, when multiple shows open it's simultaneously that have multiple creatives that work on the same thing. Like William Ivy Long opened uh, Beetlejuice and Tootsie within a day of each other. And he did costumes for both of those. And of course, Alex here directed both Moulin Rouge and Beetlejuice. And you know, Beetlejuice he's been working on for almost 10 years. And Moulin Rouge, not as long, but still like you just never know when it's going to hit. So sometimes it just happens. You have multiple things. So he balances his life very well. We talked about that a little bit. Um, Something he said, too, that really, really impressed me and resonated with me as someone who has started their own podcast because, uh, you know, I'm trying to make more opportunities for myself. Um, He said that as a young director, there was kind of like this stigma that until you had gray hair, until you were like in your 40s or 50s, that you weren't allowed to direct anything big. And so he just went off and created his own stuff. He wrote Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, which uh, was his directorial Broadway debut. And basically his whole life, he was creating things from scratch. And and he created his own cable access show here in New York City at age 20. Twelve, So just an incredible guy. This was a great conversation. Of course, this is part one. Part two will come out in a few days. So um, please stay tuned and visit thetheaterpodcast.com slash Patreon to show your support. If you are at the $5 tier or higher, you get advance notice of these interviews so you can actually submit your questions as well. So everybody, please enjoy this episode with director and writer extraordinaire Alex Timbers. My guest today is a two-time Tony-nominated writer and director and the recipient of Golden Globe, Drama Desk, Outer Critics Circle, and London Evening Standard Awards, as well as two Obie and Lucille Lortel Awards. His Broadway directing credits alone include Moulin Rouge the Musical, Oh Hello, on Broadway, Rocky, Peter and the Starcatcher, and of course, Beetlejuice, which was recently nominated for eight Tony Awards this past 2019 season. He is even a co-writer of the Amazon series Mozart in the Jungle, which won the 20th 2016 Golden Globe Award for Best Television Series. Alex Timbers, welcome to the Theater Podcast. Hey, how are you? Did I cover everything? Oh my gosh, that was so thorough. I learned some stuff. <laughs> People are like, yeah, I need you to write my bio all the time. <laughs> I, I, in researching you, I knew you from the theater scene, but I didn't know you from, um, from the television side until I was researching for this episode. And I'm, I'm really impressed with uh hey like we're basically the same age you're two years o- older than me and th- which makes me feel like i didn't accomplish anything in my <laughs> life <laughs> but um let's start out i guess at, at the at the be- start at the beginning um like where did you grow up and what kind of kid were you uh yeah i grew up in new york city uh went to school here saw a little theater acted always in my like school play 
Uh, I went to an all boys school. So sometimes that was playing guys. Sometimes I was playing Madame Jardin and Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme. And uh, yeah, the, went to school here. And then uh, the sort of the big thing I, I did as a kid was founded a public access TV show in New York. Really? Yeah. Yeah. When I was 12. And uh, it was like a sketch comedy show. And uh, uh, we served as me and two fellow students. And we were on uh, a Manhattan Neighborhood Network, Channel 69 on right after Dyke TV. It was, it was fantastic. <laughs> all, all our friends watched and the parents too. Yeah. Wow. So, so you were involved with comedy like young, young. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's that. I, I feel like that was more the starting ground for my interest in theater than in theater itself, actually. Do you watch your old videos of when you were 12 or 13, 14, and you're just like, how did I make it through this point in my life? No, I would be mortified, but my parents do remind me of them frequently. Do yeah. they have copies? I think their copies probably do exist. Oh, you got to like take them off of the, the Betamax, whatever they are, VHS. A, in my will, it will say they will be burned. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, okay. So you got the cable access. That was your, I guess, intro foray into performing. Did your parents encourage this or were they like, eh, it's a side project. He'll just, you know. Uh, you know, they've been encouraging through my life, but, but uh, you know, I don't think it was sort of, you know, I think they would be the first to say it was in sort of their world. And so when I went to high school, I went to school in Illinois and the school was amazing because it had a, a, a whole sort of video component to it, a telecom. Mm -hmm. So they had a, a three camera studio, uh, like some of the first nonlinear editors, you, you mm -hmm. know, that you could, uh, uh, you could get for, you know, educational use. And, uh, and so it had another little, TV show there and started selling shorts and things like that. And I sold one to PBS when I was 15. It was kind of cool. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Um, and then going to college, uh, you know, I, I did improv and sketch and got really interested in the mechanics of comedy and got interested in the idea of directing a farce and thinking that was a, you know, a, mm -hmm. that would be an interesting way to explore comedy further and directed another farce and then was like, I, I really like directing theater. And, and, that so so it was really the comedy that was the entree into theater. Wow! And when was so when was the first time that you directed like an actual theater production? It was probably when I was like nineteen. I directed a uh, black comedy by Peter Schaffer, and then I directed Lend Me a Tenor, uh, which was on Broadway a couple yeah. of years ago, actually. Yeah. yeah, and a great revival. That's crazy. Okay, so so you were in New York, and that's when you realized you wanted to direct. I guess around you know late teens. Did you ever perform, or did you always know you wanted to be? Like kind of behind the scenes. I did perform a little bit. I I, I remember my freshman year acting in a, a production of The Marriage of Bet and Boo. So this is freshman year of college, and I played Boo. And uh, I remember just the whole time just being sort of outside of my own performance. I'm sure people have had this experience all the time as actors, and just watching it and adjudicating it, and just thinking, uh, you know, not wasn't in the moment wasn't very good. I, I, I knew that too. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, maybe I should be the person on, you know, someone on the other side of the footlights. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I've been there and watch myself. And I'm like, maybe I should do this. Yeah. That is, I think it's a sign that you need to be behind the scenes. And then you mentioned college and you went uh, to Yale. Yeah. Graduated magna cum laude. Thank you. You're, you're a smarty. Uh, what did you, ma you major in there? Uh, film and TV as a double major. My, my focus in film was uh, Polish cin Eastern European cinema, particularly Polish cinema. <laughs> Very specific. <laughs> why, why that? Uh, I, I, I just love, it felt to me like Ibsen. It felt like this sort of, um, uh, 
you know, world that was exotic uh, to me, but had the, these kind of really sort of present contemporary moral questions that felt, felt like that was the work that like, you know, people like Vida was grappling with and Kijlovsky. And I, I just felt very um, re emotionally resonant to me. So now I mentioned earlier, you're, you're 41 and, mm -hmm. and now running on Broadway simultaneously, you've got Moulin Rouge and Beetlejuice yeah. that you directed. Uh, how, how, how do you approach these, these projects? I guess the first question, did they both come to you at the same time or were you, do you work on them in parallel? Obviously to, to put them up, you do, but do you know they're going to be released or open at the same time? No, it's a total coincidence. Uh, I started work on Beetlejuice 10 years ago, started work on Moulin Rouge six years ago, and it's just, you know, fate that they're happening at the exact same time. Is that something you try to avoid or you're just like, it is what it is? Uh, yeah, it is what it is. I mean, you feel lucky when anything gets to production. That's how, that's how I generally feel. But, but I will say this last 15 months have been fairly <laughs> fairly punishing. <laughs> you, your gray hair has yeah. slightly increased. Um, and yeah, so in, in, uh, in 2010, you also had Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson yeah. and the Pee Wee Herman show, both in development at the same time. Are they were in? Or did they open at the same time? No, oh they yeah, they were basically yeah. in. I think we were in previews of Andrew Jackson while Pee Wee was happening. I had never done a show on Broadway before, and it, yeah. felt, it definitely felt crazy. I felt what, very lucky, but also very crazy. Was that? Uh, I guess the, the the process of bringing something to the Broadway stage. I mean, obviously, I know the answer is yes, but how complicated? How much more complicated is it for Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, your first directorial or Broadway directorial debut? How different was that versus? other projects? Um, well, you know, Andrew Jackson was interesting in that I had done it like three or four times at this point. We had done a production at Williamstown that was very different from the Broadway production. We did a production in LA that was very different from the Broadway production. But then we did it twice at the public at, uh, uh, at the Shiva, and then a year later in the Newman, and then moved it to Broadway. So in a mm -hmm. way, it felt like even though we made you know, adjustments uh, for Broadway and the scale was different. Uh, it felt a little bit like you were remounting something. Uh, also, I had been very lucky in that I had gotten to assist on uh, Jersey Boys years before. So uh, there was a, a slight kind of demystification of the mm -hmm. Broadway teching process that was, I thought, really useful in the end. That's fun. So, so then you take that, Obviously, and you, and you can scale up now. And Beetlejuice and Moulin Rouge both are no small feats. They are massive productions. And Moulin Rouge, I, I don't I don't know the production budget, but the licensing fees alone have to be astronomical. I mean, the the trick of licensing all those songs is an incredible feat that the producers pulled off. It's it's really amazing. Yeah. So, do you did you have any any say into uh, talk about Moulin Rouge real quick? But did you have mm -hmm. any say into like what songs got got included or what didn't? Oh yeah. Or was it all? Oh yeah. yeah. Um, so I got approached uh, by Baz Luhrmann about six years ago. I think it was like summer 2013. Um, and you know, he's been wonderful because he. His background, he and Catherine Martin, his his uh, creative partner, they, you know, their background is in theater before film, and so they understand the adaptation. I mean, a lot of their films are adaptations, so mm -hmm. so they were wonderful and and sort of giving some like key pieces of guidance, and then saying, you know, go forth and make something. Uh, and uh, so as we began the adaptation process. Uh, John Logan, the book writer, Justin Levine, the music supervisor, and I got in a hotel room at 
I, I, I was an AKA and I hauled, uh, you know, my girlfriend's synthesizer across Times Square and we got in there and we, we just started plotting out uh, uh, the musical with note cards, just like you do any new story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and as we got to, once we plotted out the plot, um, we went to the song, where would song spots make sense? And some lined up with songs from the film, some were brand new, and then went through that process of figuring out what song should go where. It was very collaborative, very creative, really fun, really free. Yeah. So so Baz approached you about that? Yeah, he was very generous. You know, he had seen Andrew Jackson and he had seen Here Lies Love. And I think yeah. he felt uh, there was a kind of kindred spirit there. And I think, I think also, you know, he had worked on uh, a lot of uh, stage shows himself and just knew the process was so long. And, you know, I, I think didn't want to, you know, feel like his life was spent remaking past, you know, masterpieces. Right? Yeah, I, I totally, I totally sympathize with that. So right. I was very the, the lucky recipient of that line of thinking. <laughs> well, there, uh, yeah. So there was that one, and then uh, Beetlejuice, uh, also uh, an adaptation. Well, I guess it's not a remake; it's an adaptation, obviously, from a movie. Did did how did that get started? Did Tim Burton approach you, or did you have to approach Tim Burton? Uh, there's a wonderful producer at. Warner Brothers, who's been there for a long time, was very important uh, uh, in a lot of Tim Burton's movies as the president of production at Warner's, a guy named Kevin McCormick. Um, And Kevin had seen, this was back in 2010, had seen Andrew Jackson and the Pee Wee Herman show. And we had a meeting about collaborating on something. And uh, he brought up the idea of Beetlejuice. He was like, what about Beetlejuice? And, you know, for me, uh, and I'm sure most directors would say this too, you know, you don't just get, say, oh, I love the movie Beetlejuice. Yeah, let's make a musical of that. Right. Uh, I, you know, I, I said, huh, well, let me think about it. So I went away for a little bit and I came back and I said, okay, if these three things were true of an adaptation process and we were allowed to explore in these directions, then this could be something very interesting. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh yeah, I'm on board with all that. Let's do it. Uh, and so that was the start of that process. That's crazy. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin with that. And, and something that's got supernatural elements is, I think, so hard to pull off on stage. Yeah. So I, I, actually, to go into those three things, if it's, if it's interesting, you know, one of the things it felt really important is that any stage adaptation was uh, as emotional as possible. And so it felt like Lydia was really the, the key to that. So mm-hmm. uh, we said sort of in the adaptation process, could we focus on... Lydia as the protagonist, even though she's kind of a secondary character in the movie. Another thing, you know, in terms of those uh, special effects you're talking about is, can the how, you know, the, the movie is really interesting and in that's pretty much sat in one location for, you know, 90% of the movie. And so, you know, you think of like August Osage County or Virginia Woolf or, you know, name any other play. Uh, a lot of them are set in a single uh, location as well. So we said, well, okay, can we make the house a character as well? Mm-hmm. And can it transform? Can it be the Maitland's home and then uh, the Dietz's home and then it can be Diljuice Enchanted? So it becomes a sort of magic box. Um, and can all the effects in that way be practical? You see the walls in front of you. It's not like armatures coming out of the ground or anything like that or giant things flying in. It's like the, the walls are you know, puppets burst through and, you know, a, a fire spurts out of someone's hand. It's all sort of uh, practical effects mm-hmm. and practical, uh, um, you know, magic before your very eyes. And so, the, I, I, and I think that's key to the, the, you know, the Burton aesthetic, especially with that movie. You read these interviews with him and he talks about 
Beetlejuice, which was uh, his second movie after after Pee Wee Herman, believe it or not, but the first one where you really see his aesthetic. And he talks about the kind of DIY charm of that. So it really felt important uh, to, you know, that's why we called up Michael Curry and said, mm-hmm. can you make us a giant sandworm and another sandworm and another sandworm uh, and, uh, and not rely on, you know, video and projections for that kind of thing. Um, the third element that was really important uh, was the idea of leaning into Beetlejuice as a kind of figure that can break the fourth wall. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's a, you know, he's a trickster character, so he can pop up next to you, he can lie to you, he can kick over the footlights and, you know, sit in your lap. Um, and uh, so, so that idea of Beetlejuice, uh, who doesn't really appear until 40 minutes into the movie, mm-hmm. sort of like Jaws, um, <laughs> uh, he, we wanted him to, to start it. And we, we also felt like what was kind of cool about Lydia and Beetlejuice, and if you watch the animated show, I don't know if you grew up with that, I grew up with it. Oh, yeah. Uh, they're sort of, you know, they're best buddies in that, you know, frenemies, so you'd call it now, yeah. right? And uh, and so the idea of these two kind of con man figures, you know, two very clever people out, outsmarting each other, outwitting each other, that felt very, uh, you know, be, uh, musical theater, you look at the, the line of great con men, you know, Bialystok and Bloom, Harold Hill, it felt, felt like, oh, if these these folks could be in that lineage, there's there's good, uh, good history there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that... Uh the casting, the casting is, I mean, it, it's what we're used to. It, it seems perfect, though. And it, you're talking about Lydia, but um, Sophia, she is now 18. So yeah. how old, so you, you were working on it 10 years ago. Obviously, you didn't find her when she was eight. No, but, but I think we started working with her when she was like 15 or something. Like really? That. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's incredible. I mean, she's the most amazing actress. And uh, I had seen her in a play at MCC called The Nether, and she was in Lazarus, the David Bowie musical, yeah. and, and then Blackbird. And I, I just was always, I was like, this, she's like sort of preternaturally wise, you know? And uh, and uh, and uh, this amazing singer, that which I don't know that a lot of New York knows, uh, or at least a lot of the theater community knows. Uh, and, and so we started developing this with her. She did everyone, everything but the first reading. So she did like two readings, two workshops. She did the out of town and, uh, which took place over like two and a half years. And she, she's wonderfully committed to it. And, uh, I think has brought so much of herself to the role. And I th- I know the writers sort of glommed onto all her ideas mm-hmm. and we're just so excited and inspired by her and the collaboration. Well, what, what about Alex, uh, Alex Brightman? Yeah, Alex Brightman. So Alex is, uh, Fantastic. I mean, he's so smart. He's so funny. Uh, so much of the Beetlejuice character is him. I mean, he really starts so early in the collaborative process as well that I feel like the uh, you know the character met him halfway and he met the character halfway. Uh, and the writers really wrote into like his improvisation and his ideas. And uh, I think that's why that role fits him so like a glove be- uh, because he's had such a hand in developing it. Um, and he's just, you know, his background also, he's done a lot of improv, uh, done a lot of sketch. He's very quick on his feet. He's very, like, he loves that freeze on with the live audience. And when something happens in the room, you know, he'll acknowledge it and embrace it. Uh, he's, he's just, he's, and he's also, you know, like Sophia, just wildly collaborative. And so it was a very fun process. I mean, you can imagine how much laughter was in that yeah. rehearsal room. Yeah. I was, I was researching him a little bit too. And, and he, his, his Broadway credits as, as like a leading man are very limited. And this is a big role to hand someone with, I, I mean, I guess 
What what did you see in him that you were like, yeah, he's going to carry this show. This no brainer. Well, I think he has he he has he's very very funny. He's very quick on his feet, and he has this kind of edge in darkness, you know. But there's a sort of empathy to everything you see. I mean, when you saw him play uh, Dewey in School of Rock, the mm-hmm. characters, you know. A, a, a total loser might be hard to relate to in certain ways, but you love him and you you immediately sympathize with him. And I think that's you know Beetlejuice, uh, the character is a, is a sociopath. You know, <laughs> so you, you need that uh, you need that quality. Right, right. And um, working with William Ivy Long too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Costumes, costumes are incredible too. They was that sort of a, uh, what was that process like, the collaborative process? Was it like an extension of what you were talking about with the house transforming? Because the costumes seemed to be part of the the living, breathing entity of the show too. Yeah, we knew we wanted the costumes to be magical and to be cool and to have transformation. And uh, immediately, you know, when you think of transformation on stage, you think of William Ivy Long, you think of Cinderella or the, 74 other Broadway shows he, yeah. he's designed, literally. <laughs> literally 75 shows, yeah. Um, and uh, and so the process began with him. Uh, we had we were supposed to do a production of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum uh, about four years ago. And so we, I was really excited to work with him, and that didn't end up happening. And uh, so when this opportunity came around, and David Corns had worked with him on uh, Grease, mm-hmm. on uh, the Grease Live show on TV, and uh, was like, oh, you guys are going to get along. He's the perfect guy for this. And uh, the collaboration was fantastic. And, and William, you know, you wouldn't know that he had designed so many Broadway shows and had so much experience, so many, you know, great achievements and awards in his past because he treated it like it was his first show out of college. I mean, he surrounded his studio in these like stri- stripe studies, how much black, how much white, 60% black, 40% white. How, what is your, what is, what is stripes on stripes? Every, every <laughs> kind of thing. And so I think the first four months was just looking at like black and white graphic prints. Wow. And then, um, and yeah. And, and then it evolved. So I'd say that design process was probably about two years on the costumes on the set. It was five years. Uh, I've never worked on a show, uh, the design process for as long as it was on this one. Really? Yeah. Really? How long does it normally take? Uh, I, it depends. You know, it depends on the show, but uh, the, the, these were very long. Yeah. I guess it sort of has to be, though. I mean, and you've got you've got sort of the the financial backing too, because Warner Brothers has some deep pockets, I would assume. So it's you're not constricted by time. You know, like pressure to get to the stage at all. Well, it was interesting because Beetlejuice, because we wanted the set to be a part of the. The kind of it was part of the initial idea of like how are we going to do this? Yeah, um, we brought in Corns much early. Corns the set designer much earlier than you would on um, pretty much any show. So he was he was there for the writing process. He was maybe the third hire on the show. Oh no, kidding! Uh, I think he even preceded the composer uh, uh, possibly. To look back at that, um, and uh, and so we went through a real iterative process. There were a bunch of different sets for this show, even though we said it's going to take place in a house. But, you know, we, we went through, uh, even though the, the set has a lot of uh, scale and there's a lot of spectacle within it, the uh, it's actually much simpler than our initial designs. Um, and I find that sort of the budgeting process and the kind of the practicalities of that, I love that part of the process because it really forces you in a very uh, 
creative way or in a surprisingly creative way to just refine your ideas and hone them to mm-hmm. what are the most important ones. And for uh, Beetlejuice, I thought it was, you know, it was it was really successful. So I I love the collaboration with producers and general managers and production managers as you work with the design team and figuring out what is what what are the essential things you need. You know, right, right, yeah. That that seems like. You come, I guess you come, the show gets put into previews or out of town as like a steak with a bunch of fat on it. And then you, you know, as you cook the steak, you, of course, or you go to eat the steak, you're taking all the fat off the sides and then you present this perfectly, hopefully perfect, perfect piece sure. of meat yeah. to your audience. But uh, I guess talking about the out of town though, you did your out of town in DC. Uh huh. And um, what did, what happened? Uh, in the in the process between DC and New York, did you what what was learned in DC that was kind of unexpected? As we opened the show in DC, we were really proud of it and excited about it, um, and uh, we had a lot of audiences who really loved it and it sold really well. But not all the reviews were great. Uh, two of them, in fact, two of the really important ones were uh, had a really tough time with the show. So we went back to the drawing board in a really significant way and. Uh, and just sort of looked at a bunch of things. We looked at uh, the emotional on-ramps for the show. You know, how quickly are you connecting with Beetlejuice? Uh, th- th- those sort of things, those, those kind of empathetic qualities mm-hmm. of Beetlejuice. Uh, uh, looking at uh, creating more emotional on-ramps to uh, Lydia, relatability uh, in the Maitlands. Uh, looking at the father-daughter relationship between Lydia and Charles. Um, looking at uh, what happens in the netherworld um, and how it can work better for us. Um, Looking at tone, there was just a lot of stuff that felt uh, maybe a little like uh, overstuffed, I think was a word that was used and kind of just uh, maybe pushed pushed the show sometimes into edgy a place for uh, a lot of audiences. Um, and so, or, or the, these were, this was the feedback we were sort of gathering. So mm-hmm. we said, okay, let's try, you know, let's try all these things. Um, and so it was, it was this really amazing thing happened amongst the producers, the designers, the actors, and the writers, and chiefly among the writers. And they just said, oh, okay, so we started creating lists and we were like, okay, here's 10 things we can do to address this question. Here's 12 things. We had this, this massive thing we marched forward with. A lot of it affected the design, you know whether it was the end of act one or the beginning of act two or the beginning of, you know, every scene had substantial changes in terms of the writing, the tone and the design. Um, And uh, I was, I have to say, I've never been a part of a team effort like that, that, you know, because you're working on the show for nine years and then suddenly it's like, Mm -hmm. change it, change almost everything. Um, And uh, the actors, you know, were super on board and were excited and, you know, fired up about it and were just so wonderful and what, what could be a very, you know, tricky circumstance. And, uh, uh, and, and so everyone just was, had this kind of felt like a communal kind of effort. Everyone knew exactly what we were trying to do, uh, in terms of our stated artistic goals. And, um, yeah, and, and, and we worked hard and even, even during tech, where like the cardinal rule is you don't change the show during mm-hmm. tech, right? Because it's especially on a show like that, that's so complicated. We tossed a song and put in a new song. We rehearsed it in the upper lobby while we were rehearsing a, a dance number on stage. It was I, the actors were heroic, and so wow. were the writers. It was really amazing. I mean, during tech for Bro- the Broadway, yeah, yeah, wow, yeah, that, yeah, that is. It's one of my favorite amazing. songs in the show. Yes, that's it's great. Yeah. Oh, oh, the, the new one or the one that was cut? The new one. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's crazy. So uh, in, in, in D.C., like... Was it a darker story, or is is I mean, like for, I guess general tonality was it darker in DC and more comedic here, or sort of vice versa? Well, it was comedic in both places. I just think it was a it was naughtier in DC, um, and uh, it was a little more uh, uh, sort of envelope pushing in the humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's still there. I don't think that's been cut out. I think it's just been the amount of it has been sort of uh, uh, tempered. Uh, it was sort of getting away a little bit, I think, in terms of the uh, emotional experience. And I think uh, for certain audience members, it's creating a kind of a wall to that prevented you from entering and enjoying hmm. the show. So, uh, yeah, so it was, it, was a, it was a good evolution. Thanks for listening to part one of this episode with Alex Timbers. Please visit us online at ttp.fm and show your support by visiting ttp.fm slash Patreon. If you're a $5 supporter or more, you get advance notice of these interviews so you can actually submit your questions to be asked as well. Stay tuned in a few days for part two. Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.